Each day, more than 100,000 people suffer from a chronic genetic blood disease that causes debilitating pain. When there's no cure, where do you turn? Next on CTSI Discovery Radio, find out new ways people living with sickle cell disease are finding some relief, right here in our own backyard. Good day, Southeast Wisconsin. I'm David Todd, and this is CTSI Discovery Radio on WMSE. Every month, Discovery Radio takes you behind the scenes of the Clinical and Translational Science Institute of Southeast Wisconsin, or CTSI, to show you what scientific discoveries are happening right here in Wisconsin, and how they affect the health of our city, our state, and our country. CTSI partners work together to tackle community health needs and do it together using each other's strongest talents. The partners of the CTSI are the VA Medical Center, Children's Hospital of Wisconsin, Freighter Health, the Blood Center of Wisconsin, plus the Milwaukee School of Engineering, Marquette University, the Medical College of Wisconsin, and UW-Milwaukee. This month, we'll talk about sickle cell disease and how our partners here in Wisconsin and around the country are finding new ways to ease the pain and strain on those living with the disease. But first, a little more about how CTSI is making strategic partnerships that matter. And we couldn't talk about strategic partnerships without talking with our partners at UWM. I recently caught up with Interim Chancellor Mark Money on a Saturday at an open house for the School of Freshwater Sciences. Chancellor Money, I know the school year just started. How's it going so far? Oh, it's going great. We're just having a, a wonderful time with all the energy that our students and faculty and staff bring back uh, after a, a recharging summer. I know at UWM you've been responsible for strategic planning and partnerships uh, for the university, which falls in line with the goals of CTSI. How do you think having a CTSA here in southeast Wisconsin will help or support the UW system? Well, you know, it's interesting you asked that. We just had, uh, in fact, this, this uh, tour this morning featured our uh, UW system president, uh, uh, regent, um, Mike Falbo, and um, he was here, and we were talking just about that issue in terms of how the UW system really does uh, get behind so many of the regional efforts that we're doing across the state. Um, for example, he talked a little bit about the new north, and we talked specifically about the type of regional work that occurred, and I had the fortune to actually give Rebecca Blank, the UW-Madison chancellor, a two of this facility and spent some time with her on uh, Thursday of this week and we talked exactly about that issue in terms of all the great opportunities for us to, to, to further that corridor between Madison and Milwaukee. So I see this as just another um, plank down to, to really build a stronger state around that. And as a man who has uh, built strategic relationships and strategic partnerships, I imagine it's only easier to get these things done in collaboration with partners that really have the same goals in mind. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I think what we have today with the leadership that we have in place with the CTSI institutions as well as others, a real need and a greater understanding of the importance of um, for so many outcomes for us to work together. Um, one of the phrases that I have used is, none of us is strong as all of us. While it sounds perhaps trite and we've heard that before, it's so true in this area. And I think um, about the benefits for students, I think about the benefits um, that are so in line with CTSI. The application of the work that we do in the labs in our different research settings that actually is put into practice the translation quite literally of from from the the, the, the research sites to bedside to curbside to really bring it forward who's not going to benefit from that if you think about the health challenges um, not just regionally but but globally and we have uh, some of the best researchers working on those areas so so um, that's where I see the alignment being so powerful and the types of outcomes that it can impact. 
and Milwaukee's Commissioner of Health, Bevan Baker, agrees. The CTSI is the key to the future of public health. Commissioner Baker, oftentimes when you hear about the city health department, you hear about um, major health issues, flu, vaccinations, viruses that break out. How does the city work on smaller health issues? For instance, sickle cell disease. Well, well first, uh, the public health community is a part of the entire health services delivery. And we work with so many partners that might deal at the 300-foot level with a patient who's uh, suffering from sickle cell disease. However, our job in public health is to really go upstream and deal with those macro issues, to deal with the things that would make our entire population healthy. So we think about what happens with you, we think about what happens with your colleagues. We think about what happens with all of our population. We want a healthy city, healthy community, healthy state. And to do that, we've really got to look globally at the public health concerns. We've got to work with a diverse group of, of providers and community organizations. But also, we've got to be that invisible force that's actually combating the things to keep the public from becoming sick in the first place. That's the cornerstone of public health, making certain you prevent disease before it happens. Can you tell me what you know about the CTSI? Well, I, I, I'm, I was very pleased to see uh, the Medical College of Wisconsin be um, uh, identified as, as one of those uh, medical schools and one of those sites that is embracing this whole notion of preventive care and, and transformational care at, at a, uh, a community level. I am fortunate to be involved in uh, the Medical College uh, by sitting on the consortium board for, for their uh, Blue Cross Blue Shield uh, funding, and I've seen and heard the advantages that they're making in this area. I think this is the future of health care delivery as we see it. And it is great to get that thrust from, from Washington to marry with what's happening here at a medical school. The fact that this institute exists, it's going to make populations going forward so much healthier. And I think it's a big win for, for the region. It's a big win for the state of Wisconsin to have that uh, CTSI right here in our own backyard. The greatest advancements in medicine have been longitudinal and they've been macro level. The public health advances. The fact that you can drink clean water, breathe clean air, the fact that there are vaccines to prevent hideous diseases that we can only read about are advances in public health. We soon forget, and particularly it comes back when there's an outbreak of some disease, look no, look no further than Ebola in terms of what's happening globally. The public health community is working to put that fire out. Out. But we've been working on combating viruses worldwide for hundreds of years, and it's so important that we continue that work here locally and globally. Well, Commissioner Baker, thank you for being on the front lines of public health for us. I'm honored to serve, and, uh, and thank you. The CTSI of Southeast Wisconsin is only one of 62 clinical and translational science awards in the country. But there are others working just as hard to turn basic science into new therapies and treatments. So we asked the director of the Vanderbilt Institute for Clinical and Translational Research in Nashville how he's using his CTSA for the benefit of the community. Good afternoon, Dr. Bernard. How are you doing today? I'm doing fine. Thank you very much. Can you tell me what has the CTSA afforded Vanderbilt that it didn't have before? Well, it has greatly expanded the uh, infrastructure for the conduct of translational research. Uh, we, like many CTSAs, had a large clinical research center, but it was essentially an inpatient and outpatient 
hospital-type facility uh, that catered very nicely to certain kinds of research like uh, clinical pharmacology, uh, immunology, and so forth, but didn't really support our entire university campus uh, in areas of health-related research. Uh, Tell me what kind of projects that you are working on now that you weren't before. Well, probably uh, one of the largest projects has been the uh, development of what we call BioView, B-I-O-V-U. It's a play on words, bio from biology, and VU is Vanderbilt University, Uh, but it's a a data and uh, specimen bank uh, of patient DNA that's now grown to more than 180,000 samples, uh, which are de-identified and matched to de-identified medical records that allow our investigators to conduct research very, very efficiently with regard to genetic and genomic type studies. How has the CTSA helped develop your clinical researchers and your MDs? It's uh, allowed us to centralize a lot of the support mechanisms and create new support mechanisms for the trainees at various levels. Um, Have any of your uh, uh, pilot-funded awards uh, led to any um, NIH R01s? Uh, Yes, many have. Uh, We have a very robust pilot program. Uh, I I would venture to say it's one of the most versatile uh, pilot programs in the CTSA system. Our um, scientific review committee meets every two weeks. Uh, We award funds anywhere from a few dollars to a few hundred thousand dollars. There's no cap on the request. Um, We have three categories of requests. One's called a voucher, which is something where you can go online and request support up to $2,000 to do a really quick pilot. Um, And uh, it's just administratively reviewed, so you have approval within 24 to 48 hours to to do the work. And this was designed to support people who have a bright idea in the middle of the night of something they want to do, uh, oftentimes with samples that are stored in a freezer or something along those lines, that aha moment. And we don't want them to lose that. And so if they can get funded within a very short period of time, we figure there's a good chance they'll act on it. And many times those things pay off. Um, and so that was the nature of the, what we call the voucher. And then our other awards go from 2000 on up to, to uncapped. And, uh, and we, we handed out something in the neighborhood of 1,500 to 1,600 pilot awards since we started the CTSA. So it really hits a lot of people. That sounds amazing. Uh, thank you so much for joining me today, Dr. Bernard. It sounds like uh, Vanderbilt University is really uh, doing some excellent work there. Well, we're having a good time. Thank you so much for uh, calling me. Now, let's find out a little bit more about sickle cell and how it affects approximately 100,000 people each year. We turn to Dr. Keith Hoots, Director of the Division of Blood Diseases and Resources at the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute in Washington, D.C. Good afternoon, Dr. Hoots. Good afternoon. Uh, Thank you for joining us today. Um, As the Director of the Division of Blood Diseases and Resources at the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute, tell me if there's been any um, innovation or any um, new information coming out about sickle cell disease. Well, just this week, uh, we released uh, guidelines that were developed uh, with an expert panel that we helped convene. Uh, this, some of the elements of these guidelines were published in the Journal of the American Medical Association on Tuesday. And what were some of those new guidelines? Well, the guidelines themselves, you know, they're based on the literature, if there is lit- medical literature. Uh, and in particular, one of them was to encourage a broader use of hydroxyurea, which is the one uh, FDA-approved drug for sickle cell disease. Uh, 
Uh, and there were others as well to make sure that children receive vaccination against pneumococcal disease, that uh, they uh, are on penicillin to age five if they have this severe type of, of sickle cell disease. Those are things we've known for a while, but we're trying to put them all in one place, particularly for primary care physicians uh, who may have only one or two patients in their practice uh, that might have sickle cell disease, particularly among pediatric patients, that they also may have a pediatric hematologist who also coordinates their care. And the new guidelines are really around um, taking care of the whole person because it's a chronic disease. That is correct. It's a multi-organ disease as well. What aggravates the disease? What can push it into a full-on sickle cell crisis? There are a number of potential triggers. One is dehydration. Uh, since uh, the concentration of the sickle hemoglobin is influenced by how well hydrated you are, if you have less than normal or optimal hydration, it can actually uh, be adverse uh, for the individual and make them more likely to have their red blood cells sickle. Uh, sometimes there can be infectious triggers that can uh, set off what we call vaso-occlusive crises, uh, such as viral infections or bacterial infections. Uh, those are probably the, the most common triggers, but they're not the only ones. Are there any other um, lifestyle suggestions that you're giving to folks who are living with sickle cell? Yeah, in particular for adult patients, we're encouraging them to have uh, ac access to the healthcare system through a primary care provider if they don't have one already, because having someone with medical knowledge to coordinate their access into what can be a very complicated system for different disease processes that are part of sickle cell disease can, can be a, that can be a challenge for any individual. So that's one of the things that's being encouraged here. Where is the research going on sickle cell disease? What do we hope is our best intervention as we go forward? Well, it's a very good question, and I think what we're hoping uh, is that we have a number of uh, early research possibilities that are, that are leading the way for a number of the uh, mechanisms that add to the complexity of sickle cell disease. And, and the good news is that at least the ones that are coming forward aren't all directed at one part of the biology of sickle cell disease. They're actually aimed at multiple uh, problems that are created by the single gene that sets the disease into motion. What we know is that because red blood cells sickle, not only do that, does that cause problems in their blood flow, but it also sets off inflammation signals. So a number of the uh, targets that are just being developed may actually uh, target the secondary effects on inflammation that sickling is caused, but we also have new developmental uh, potential drugs in the pipeline that are actually targeting the sickling itself and other manifestations of the biology, which are which is complex because it involves so many organs. So a little bit of a research triage on, on how to uh, intervene and to help these folks with sickle cell. That's what we're hoping, and we're not there yet, but that's what, uh, the, that's what we're hoping the science will, will lead to. Dr. Hoots, that's wonderful information and, and so hopeful for people who are living with sickle cell. And I look forward to speaking with you again, sir. Well, thank you very much. Dr. Joshua Field is Medical Director of the Adult Sickle Cell Clinic here at the Freydert and Medical College of Wisconsin. The clinic opened in 2011 to serve as a medical home for people with sickle cell disease. It's one way Freydert and the Medical College are working together to improve patient health.
Dr. Field, can you tell me how you got into the um, study of sickle cell disease and blood diseases? I became really interested in the disease for, for a few reasons. First of all, it, they're, they're just an incredibly sick group of, of people. Um, and so there, there's a lot of opportunity to do a lot of good. Um, the other reason that I became very interested in them as well, though, was because there were a lot of unanswered questions taking care of patients and making a difference, but as well as being able to conduct meaningful research and have the opportunity to make a big impact, um, I, I really fell in love with the patient population. Talking about the sickle cell patient population, um, what is, on a daily basis, you know, what is their greatest need when they find themselves in the throes of sickle cell crisis? Really what our patients battle most is pain and they often battle pain on a fairly regular basis. So a challenge for many of our patients is just finding a provider um, and then having the opportunity um, to receive pain medicine and you know the potential for hydroxyurea um, and other supportive things that are that are necessary. Um, a lot of patients um, unfortunately have to seek acute care in the emergency room or the hospital. So what we've tried to do at, at Freighter is to um, allow the patients the opportunity um, to receive the care they need, but to do so on an outpatient basis. And as you can imagine, for a disease that is fairly chaotic and unpredictable, um, that's challenging and it requires a lot of flexibility um, from the standpoint of providers. So what we've done is we've created a, a day hospital that operates Monday through Friday, five days a week, eight to five. So the patients have the opportunity to call us and to come in and receive fluids, pain medicine, um, get their laboratory values checked, um, to get assessed for really anything. And, and, and I think that's made a difference because, first of all, then the, we're very responsive to the patient's needs, but also then they, um, they're seeing people they know. And, you know, when you're treating a patient who's ill and who's in pain, um, having a relationship and having a, a history with that patient and knowing the, the nuances of that person um, is, is very, very important. And I think that that's been a big part of how we've been successful. In the uh, studies that you currently have going on in the adult sickle cell population, are there any new therapeutics that you see coming? Uh... There are certainly therapies that are being investigated. And um, we have a few therapies that we're currently investigating. I think the one that's the furthest along is um, our study of a drug called regadenosin. Um, when patients have pain, the reason that they have pain is because they're not getting enough blood flow, largely to their long bones, um, and this causes uh, some tissue damage uh, there in, in, in the bones, and really a crushing bone pain that is, that is really characterizes a crisis. The concept with giving this drug is that inflammation may actually uh, promote that process of 
clogging up the blood vessels, reducing blood flow, and contributing to the pain. So what we do is we deliver regadenosine with the hopes of diminishing inflammation during an acute crisis and dampening the severity of that crisis with the ultimate goal of maybe having less of an effect on the body, less damage done, potentially less pain medicines used, shorter hospitalizations, um, some real important clinical outcomes. So one of the critical therapies um, for our patients with sickle cell disease is, is blood. Um, and, and we actually give a substantial proportion of the blood transfused to patients at Frederick Hospital go towards transfusing our patients. The reason for that is, from a very simple standpoint, you know, one is they break down their blood so they do become very anemic and often urgently need blood. The other issue is uh, giving transfused blood to a patient with sickle cell disease is sort of diluting out the sickle cells. So as you can imagine, if you're a patient with sickle cell disease that has 90% donor blood, you don't have a lot of sickle cells around to cause a lot of problems. Now, the, the tough part there is, um, by and large, when you get a unit of, of blood, it's going to come from a Caucasian donor. And a Caucasian donor um, um, would have a greater opportunity for an African-American recipient, which nearly all of our patients are, uh, to form an antibody reaction against that. Um, so really, the best matched blood from our patients comes from an African-American donor. And, and so there, there have been a lot of efforts that have gone on for a long time to try to uh, increase African-American donation specifically for this purpose. Uh, this is not done here, but some cities have even gone so far as to identify a limited number of donors for a particular patient, almost like a directed donation for that patient. Um, so th this is a continued and, and ongoing effort, but given, as I said before, we basically have hydroxyurea or blood as our therapies right now. We, we rely heavily on blood, and we do appreciate the African-American donors who do come in and, and, and regularly give uh, for our patients, and in, in large part, it, it's going to go to the sickle cell population. It sounds like you care for a very uh, in-need population who will be getting um, excellent care of their whole person. I mean, I think what we strive to do in our clinic is is exactly that, that I think we fit the medical home model. So we try not to have uh, boundaries around what we can and can't do for our patients, um, because a lot of times uh, the, the, the medical needs are, are part of the issue, but part of the issue um, may be housing, um, it may be issues of abuse. Um, it may be getting a ride to appointments. And, and so a lot of the efforts that we have try to address all those issues and, and, and at the same time um, hopefully develop some long-term relationships with the patients so that when they're in our clinic it's a place where they feel uh, very comfortable and, um, and hopefully that allows us to provide the best care. Dr. Field, thank you on behalf of your patient population and on behalf of CTSI. We appreciate the information. Dr. Field said prior to the clinic, sickle cell patients would become so ill, they'd end up in the emergency department every few weeks to get pain meds or blood transfusions. I caught up with one of Dr. Field's participants, Elodie Casa, a graduate student at UW-Milwaukee, where we met. Um, so Elodie, tell me, how are you feeling today? I'm, really, I'm feeling good, yeah. 
Um, and how long has that been? How, how long has it been since your last uh, bout with sickle cell disease uh, crisis? Uh, July 24th and 25th. Yeah. So just a couple months ago? Yes. Yes. Um, uh, how has uh, participating in Dr. Field's study um, improved your health or improved your attitude? Um, well, just participating in his studies keeps, it just helps me to remember to take my hydroxyurea because I don't really do that very well. But um, the first study that we did was my first one and it was very interesting because it kind of just gave me um, hope sort of like oh somebody's actually still looking into this <laughs> so that maybe there's a better way to help me when I'm sick or so yeah it it definitely helped me just to keep to stay hopeful and just be as healthy as I can for now. Um, have your bouts with uh, sickle cell crisis uh, decreased? Yes, mine have not been very, um, uh, what's the word, I don't know, I don't get them as often as most people apparently, but, um, and that's since I've been on the hydroxyurea. So I think that was sophomore year of high school I started taking hydroxyurea and then I went about two and a half years without being sick and then I played around with not taking it and got sick here and there. and. Um, but when I take it, I'm really good. And sometimes when I don't take it, I'm also really good. But I think that's just me being lucky. <laughs> yeah. Um, before the uh, medication, uh, how was life for you? Um, how was, you know, week to week? Uh, week to week was fine until I got sick. So then once I get sick and then I'd be in the hospital for a week, at home a week, and missing school and having to catch up. So. Um, sometimes it'd be overwhelming catching up with school. Life, not really, just school. I didn't... Elodie, can you tell me uh, when you're in the actual crisis state, what's it feel like? It's painful. It is just, it's painful. It stings and it pulls and it's like something is hammering at me. Um, it's just really bad. When And since I don't get sick all the time when I do get sick I always just go full-on <laughs> for some reason so it's when I get the full crisis it's just very difficult and painful and I can't walk and I can't be touched and yeah it's a bad pain since I've been under Dr. Fields care the one thing that I'm just in love with is the pain management clinic because now I don't have to spend the night at the hospital and it's easier on my parents and they can drop me off in the morning and come pick me up after work or during lunch and take me back home and drop me off again in the morning and it's just it's such a great feeling not to have to stay in the hospital one because it's convenient and two because once you stay in the hospital longer you just develop other things that are really annoying like I, I would get stomach aches from the pain med and throw up a lot and then lose a lot of weight so then I can't get out any earlier because I'm not healthy. It's just, yeah. <laughs> so I love, love, love that pain clinic, pain management clinic. It's like the best thing that could ever happen for me. Elodie, thank you for your time. <laughs> thank you. This is the part of the program where we play translational trivia so we can have a little bit of fun and give you some knowledge that maybe you didn't have before. 
And we're playing today on behalf of one of our Facebook friends, Erica Sanchez, who we found out is also a student at MSOE. So we invited her into the studio to play. Hello, Erica. Hi, David. How are you? Good. How are you today? I'm good, too. Thank you. All right. Are you ready to play three questions of translational trivia? Let's do it. Sickle cell disease is the most common genetic disorder in the United States, affecting A, 100,000 people, B, a quarter million people, or C, 50,000 people? I'll go with A. A, 100,000? Mm-hmm. Correct. Yay! See, that yeah, wasn't so hard. No, it wasn't. All right, you ready for science or fiction? Yep. All right, here's your science or fiction. Sickle cell disease is genetically inherited and not contagious. Science or fiction? Science. That is correct. <laughs> Um, sickle cell disease is a genetically um, inherited disease. Okay. So you cannot catch it. Good. <laughs> All right. And the uh, final question is a fill in the blank. This is, at its most intense, sickle cell disease triggers sickle cell crisis, causing patients to have what symptoms? This one's really hard. <laughs> um, I'm not sure. All right. This one, this one, will, uh, this one will buzz you on. Um, it causes excruciating pain throughout the body. Those sickle cells block the uh, blood uh, uh-huh. vessels, okay. and um, that causes um, throbbing pain okay. in their veins and their bones. Okay. Well, excellent. Thank you so much for playing. And you have won a CTSI flash drive, notebook, pen, and coaster. Oh, awesome. I'm ready for class then. <laughs> you are. You are. Well, thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you for inviting me. Because I haven't got time for the pain. One last item, CTSI Discovery Radio airs the third Friday of every month, so make sure to join us and mark your calendar for next month. Until then, CTSI Discovery Radio is produced by the Clinical and Translational Science Institute of Southeast Wisconsin in collaboration with WMSE Radio. The show is engineered by Tom Crawford, with special thanks to Sandy Everts, Drs. Herman Vietz, Carlos De La Pena, and Reza Shakir.